A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello, this is The Naked Scientist, the show that keeps you in touch with the latest science, technology, and medicine. I'm Chris Smith. And I'm Eva Higginbotham. This week, will the traditional English country garden become a victim of climate change? Will pests and diseases surge? And how will flowers and food crops and the pollinators that make them productive be affected? Plus, news of how dust and dandruff can spread flu and other viruses, the chemical fingerprint that COVID-19 leaves on your body, and self-driving cars are looking set to take to the road. But when? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Across the world, COVID-19 is making a comeback. Boris Johnson's dubbed it a second wave and the WHO have suggested that people dropping their guard, together with a relaxation of public health measures in many countries, is translating into a surge in cases. France is seeing nearly 4,000 daily cases and across Europe as a whole, the total is close to 26,000 people testing positive each day. Now, as a result of all of that, people are trying to learn as much as possible about the manner in which coronaviruses and other respiratory infections spread. So far, a lot of emphasis has been placed on respiratory droplets. These are blobs of moisture that come out of the airways when we breathe and talk, and they can contain virus particles, and people are wearing face coverings and they're washing their hands to try to ward off that risk. But at Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York, Nicole Bouvier has been testing how flu spreads among guinea pigs, not the humans, the rodent variety. And she's found that respiratory droplets are indeed important, but that viruses can also cling to other things, which can be even more numerous as well. When humans breathe or talk or cough or sneeze, there's all kinds of microscopic particles that come out of your respiratory tract. Droplets of pure water, proteins, bits and pieces of dead cells, most of which is is invisible. So we don't really think about it, but, but it's there. So presumably guinea pigs were doing the same thing. And we wanted to know, you know, what exactly is coming out of them when they are infected with flu and putting flu out into the air. How did you do the experiments? We put the guinea pigs in a special cage that had a fine air filter that prevents, you know, stuff from the environment coming in. And then we had the other side of the cage hooked up to uh, an aerodynamic particle sizer or an APS. And that's that's basically just a, a machine that can um, not only count microscopic particles, but can tell you how big they are. And what we were finding is that there were just, you know, thousands of particles per second. And every time the guinea pig moved, there was this big poof of particles that were being detected. It suggested to us that actually the particles coming out of the cage were associated with movement. And that's when we started thinking, well, maybe this isn't just what's coming out of the respiratory tracts, but it's just dust. So these are guinea pigs with dandruff. Is that basically what uh, you're saying? Well, yeah, you know, they, they are 
dandruffy animals, but so are we. I mean, humans slough millions of skin cells off every day. But flu viruses don't grow in the skin. They grow in the nose and throat. So why is this this dander and other particular matter that's coming off the guinea pigs relevant? So what we did is we took a guinea pig and we infected it with influenza virus. And then we put the guinea pigs in a cage and we sampled virus from the cage and from the animal's body. We just took a cotton swab and dipped it in some saline and and swabbed the animal's ears and their paws and their fur and the sides of the cage. And we were able to actually grow a lot of viable flu virus from these swabs. And that indicated to us that the virus was actually being spread all over itself and its environment. Um, And it kind of makes sense when you think about what guinea pigs are doing all day long, which is sort of grooming themselves and, and snuffling around, it makes sense that virus from their noses could be getting all over the place. Does that mean then that because there's virus on things other than droplets coming out of the nose and throat, that that could be infectious too? Exactly. We also did some measurements where we um, were trying to measure exactly what was coming out of just the guinea pig's respiratory tract. And what we found was that the amount of particles coming out of their respiratory tract was just orders of magnitude smaller than what was coming out of the cage when it was sort of awake and moving around. And so it seemed reasonable to think that maybe some of these particles from the environment that if they were contaminated with flu virus might actually be transporting the virus through the air to the the susceptible guinea pig next door. And could you infect other animals? If you take those particles, can you demonstrate that there is viable virus there capable of infecting an uninfected individual? Yeah, so what we did is we took some virus and just painted it onto their fur. And then we put this animal into the into the cage next to a susceptible animal, and we were able to see transmission to the susceptible animal. And that suggests that particles that were conveying the virus were actually not coming from the respiratory tract because there was actually no virus replicating in the donor animal's respiratory tract at that point. Do you think this is relevant to humans then? It's entirely possible. You know, you could sort of imagine a person who's sick in bed with the flu if their bed sheets or their pillowcase gets contaminated. And then, you know, the nurse or, or their partner comes in the next morning and, and flaps the sheet to straighten it out, that possibly viable flu virus could be aerosolized into the air in that way. And there was actually a really interesting experiment done in the 1940s where somebody intentionally contaminate a a blanket with influenza virus, shook it in a closed container, and was able to sample live virus from the air. So, you know, we know that this is possible to do. It's just something we haven't really thought about in many decades. The obvious question is that um, the, the new coronavirus that we're all enthralled to at the moment is about the same size as flu. It's a respiratory infection. So do you think what you're finding for flu could be considered relevant to the coronavirus as well. Certainly, it's not out of the question to think it could be relevant. I think there are a couple clues that we've seen in some of the the COVID research so far. Um, For instance, there was a study done in China where scientists did air sampling in various areas of a few hospitals. What they found is that the highest levels of airborne virus that they could detect was in a room where healthcare workers were taking off their PPE. And that suggested to the authors that contaminated gowns or bonnets or gloves in the process of being taken off could be sort of shaken or rubbed in such a way that it was releasing coronavirus into the air. 
I think what we need to do is a little bit more research on what the mechanisms are by which the virus gets into the air. I think a lot of us just assume that it's coming out of the respiratory tract directly with coughing and sneezing and breathing and talking, um, but there may be other mechanisms at play that we need to sort of consider and systematically study. So coughs and sneezes spread diseases, but everything else you're wearing as well as your dandruff might do too. Sounds like that's what we're going to have to say in future. Certainly something to think about, isn't it? Nicole Bouvier there, and uh, that study with those findings detailed in it has just come out in Nature Communications. As we reported here on The Naked Scientist a couple of weeks ago, COVID-19 is a confusing illness. Some doctors are dubbing it the weirdest disease they've ever treated. What makes it so weird is the broad range of severity. Some people don't even know they've been infected, while amongst others we know that it can be lethal. Significant numbers of people are also reporting long-term symptoms, including fatigue, sensations of pins and needles, and sometimes even struggling to think clearly. So what is causing all of this? Scientists think that the disease may be producing long-term changes in a range of different organs, possibly because of damage to those organs during the initial illness. Recently, researchers at Cambridge University sent samples from COVID-19 patients here to the Australian National Phenome Centre at Murdoch University in Perth. There, using their very sensitive chemical techniques, they've been able to spot changes in a range of substances in the bloodstreams of these patients. These signature changes appear to be very specific for coronavirus infection, so they can be used as an accurate test for the disorder, possibly. They also provide insights into why people are developing some of the symptoms that they are, and, in the future, that might enable us to predict who's most at risk. Phil Sansom heard how it works from Jeremy Nicholson, who's leading the study. There is a very marked signature. In fact, it's surprisingly strong. So what we see is a pattern that's related to liver dysfunction, to diabetes, to potential cardiovascular damage and cardiac risk. The thing that makes it unique is it has a multiple system failure signature, which means that it stands out like a sore thumb. We've never seen anything quite like it. Is this specifically for people who get really severe COVID? It looks as though it's largely independent of the degree of respiratory symptoms, which is potentially quite surprising. But if you think about it, you know, there's been reports now of people having brain damage, strokes, heart failure, gut effects, kidney effects. And what we're seeing is the combination of pretty much everything that everybody's been talking about for the last couple of months. How uh, easy is that to detect for you? Well, we have various different types of advanced chemical equipment. It's all based on spectroscopy. The study of the chemical signatures of molecules. Molecules can absorb energy and radiate energy in lots of different ways. They also have characteristic mass profiles. And it doesn't matter which one we use, there's always a signature for COVID-19. In terms of this sort of being like a, almost like a test for who's been infected... How does it compare to the other tests in terms of how quick it is, how easy it is? When we started the work back in February, I wasn't terribly interested in detection per se because I made an assumption that the PCR methods for testing for the virus were extremely good. And it turns out there's a huge number of the tests have very large numbers of false negatives, which, of course, is a bad thing for a test. And we're using NMR spectroscopy. We have a test that is 100% sensitive that works in four minutes, costing about mm, £15 or something like that. And that is gender-independent, age-independent. It's also 
independent of severity. You know, everyone talks about how strange this virus is and how strange this disease is. And it's strange that the one constant is how like universally disruptive this is to people's bodies. Yeah, there are probably a number of reasons for that. The most important one is this is a disease that attacks epithelial cells, cells that line or cover surfaces. So the lung has a double epithelium. It has the cells that face the air, and it also has the blood vessels, which are very, very close indeed. But the whole of the body is full of blood vessels. And there's lots of reports in the literature about blocking tiny blood vessels and also major blood vessel blockages as well. And that means any organ in the body technically can be affected by COVID. Jeremy, when can we expect to be able to take your test? Well, you can take the test in our laboratory tomorrow, but this is informally. The pathway to getting it to a test that could really work and be deployed at scale is not necessarily a long one. It might only be eight to 12 weeks in an ideal situation. And I've been talking to lots of people who are still sick after months and months and months. Does, does this discovery that you made give them any insight? Well, that's an interesting question. So um, at the moment, we don't know enough about it. What we do know is in some people that we've looked at, we've looked at them several months after they've actually had an episode, and they're still mapping with the COVID positives who are in the hospital. When we monitor people, we'll be able to assess quantitatively whether they are going back to normal. At the moment, we can't accelerate people going back to normal. But what we will be able to do is to have a better way of assessing the health of people who had COVID in a long term follow up. Jeremy Nicholson on the coronavirus conundrum. And you can read the excellent report that he's written detailing that work in the Journal of Proteome Research. It's just come out and I must declare a conflict of interest here because I'm also one of the authors. Hi, Richard here from Space Boffins. And just to tell you that unbelievably, we've just published our 100th edition with the Naked Scientists. And it's packed. We have an extended interview with NASA's Head of Science, talking about the Moon, Mars and the challenges of the much-delayed James Webb Space Telescope. We're also joined by the UK Space Agency's Head of Human Exploration, a scientist mining asteroids albeit in a very small way. And we talk to an artist who designs space mission patches. That's the 100th edition of Space Boffins, in partnership with The Naked Scientists. Later on, we'll be talking about what climate change means for the future of the English country garden. Now, nearly two-thirds of us are infected with the herpes simplex virus. It's all viruses this week, isn't it? And herpes causes cold sores, it causes genital disease, and it can also even occasionally cause brain infections. The virus is a real headache to treat because the infection is lifelong. This is because it hides, existing just as a piece of DNA inside nerve cells. It periodically reawakens to produce painful, infectious skin blisters. And although there are drugs that can control these flare-ups when they happen, they can't remove the viral DNA, so the problem keeps on coming back. Now, researchers in the US have developed a pair of selective molecular scissors that can track down the rogue viral DNA inside nerve cells and chop it up, destroying the virus so, at least in experimental mice, it doesn't come back. Keith Jerome. Herpes is really sneaky that it actually establishes a form of itself that essentially goes into cells and then falls asleep. And that virus lives in the neurons, the nerve cells in your body, 
And then it can come back once a year, once a month, once a week and cause lesions and ulcers and anything else. And all those drugs we have don't do anything about that sleeping form of the virus. So it's effectively under the immune radar then. All the time it's dormant inside cells like that. The immune system can't see it, so it just gets ignored. That's exactly right. The immune system controls it once it wakes up and starts making more copies of itself and they take care of those new copies, but they, even the immune system doesn't do anything about that long-term sleeping form of the virus. So what can you do about it? Well, we've been using this really cool technology that's been around for a little over a decade now called gene editing. This virus is made up of DNA, just like our body is, and, and that sleeping form is actually a little tiny circle of this DNA that lives in the nerve cells. And what gene editing allows us to do is basically use what I think of as molecular scissors that can go into a cell and they can look through all the DNA in that cell and look for a very specific little stretch of the letters. And if they find those letters, they make a little cut. And so what we do is design very special scissors that ignore all of our own DNA, all the human DNA, but they look really hard for herpes. And if they find it, they make two little cuts. And so it basically falls apart and makes it go away. And this works, does it? You can actually demonstrate that... Uh you chop up the virus and it then can no longer come back. Yeah, exactly. So the study that we did was in mice. Mice get this sleeping form of the herpes just like we do. And then we can go in and we use a, a something we call a vector, a different virus that carries these scissors to those same neurons. And when it does that, um, it starts cutting up the virus. And then we can measure after our therapy how much of that sleeping form is actually left in the mice after we've treated and what we saw is we eliminated well over 90% of that virus. And if we could translate that into human beings, it's likely to prevent lesions and ulcers and disease and transmission to other people and all the things that we actually worry about. How did you get the, the virus that was the Trojan horse that carried in the molecular scissors? How did you get that into the nerve cells in these animals? Well, that was a really important part of our study is understanding the best way to get the scissors where they need to be. And we used another virus, adeno-associated virus. We actually almost all have it, never causes any disease. We basically changed that to carry these scissors for us. Just inject it into the bloodstream. And once it's in the blood, it actually goes and, and actually finds those nerve cells and introduces the scissors. It sounds like the woman who swallowed a fly and then swallows a spider to eat the fly and, and we all know how that story ends because you're basically giving someone a virus to treat a virus is this safe this particular virus vector that we've used called adeno associated virus is probably the leading vector that's being used for many many types of gene therapy now and there's several approved products out there uh, in the eu and in the united states that use adeno associated virus or aav to deliver different types of gene therapy and so we're taking something that's quite proven to be safe, modifying it slightly for our needs, and then using it to try to cure an infection where we've simply not had any hope for cure in the past. You've been looking at herpes simplex virus. This causes cold sores and it also causes genital disease. But this is one member of a big family of viruses that all work in a similar sort of way. Things like VZV, the virus that causes chickenpox, and then shingles in people unlucky enough to have that. Do you think you could prevent a person from succumbing to shingles by the same technique? 
the shingles virus actually goes into very similar nerve cells and acts a lot like herpes simplex. And so we can actually think about using the same therapy for that virus as well. We're also very actively looking at viruses that are similar but not herpes viruses, in particular hepatitis B. And we have some really exciting results there where we can do very similar things. We're likely to see success there and maybe in other viruses as well. Now, isn't that a very exciting prospect? Keith Jerome, he's at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Centre and he just documented that work in Nature Communications. Next up to some high tech. This week, we are one step closer to a future of self-driving cars thanks to a new proposal the UK government is considering, which could see automated cars on the roads as early as next year. Now, our tech guru, Peter Cowley, is with us to tell us more. So, Peter, what is this new proposal? It's only a small step, but it's quite an important one. Basically, it's a call from government for evidence for the safe use of automated lane keeping systems, or ALKS, basically staying in lane. So doing two things. One is not running into the car in front, of course, but also not leaving the lane. And although some cars already do that, they only do that with the driver having their hands on the wheel. In this case, this is actually allowing the driver to be aware so it can take over if something goes wrong, but not be as involved as it would be at the current systems. Of course, it's got to monitor whether the driver is actually still there, that has still got his seatbelt on or her seatbelt on, monitoring eye tracking, it's got a black box in there, etc. And it will pass back control to the driver if it can't cope. But it's effectively the first time that the government's moving towards actually producing a legal definition of whether an automated vehicle can go on our roads or not. Wow, so that's a truly hands-free type scenario. Um, So what what can and can't self-driving cars do already? First of all, before we get too excited, these are under very strict conditions. This is an EU directive. It's being allowed throughout Europe from, from early next year. And this is only on roads where there's no pedestrians or cyclists, only when there's a central reservation. So basically only on a motorway or a dual carriageway. And more importantly, no more than 37 miles an hour or 60 kilometres an hour, which means effectively slow moving traffic. However, the UK government are trying to work out whether it's possible to do it up to 70 miles an hour, which is our speed limit in the UK. So how far have they got? There actually is no such thing as a self-driving car on public roads yet. There are trials and there are five levels of so-called autonomy from the ones we see at the moment, which are really levels one and two to three. This is the first time that three, if it's allowed, will actually be be on the road. But remember, it's only in a single lane driving on a motorway, effectively. So it's a long way from the self-driving car. I see. And I guess one of the concerns is, really, how much can we trust the average person to sort of use it safely and to, to also be paying attention while, you know, having their hands off the wheel? What do we have to be wary of? Yeah, that's a good question, because in fact, it's what it's trying to do is replace the average person with something that in principle should be safer. An automated system, if one believes in it, in these things means that they're less likely to make an error. So obviously they're not going to be drunk or they're not going to be distracted by somebody in the back, etc., etc. So the average person isn't really relevant. It's whether one can trust the system to be effective and mean that once it's enabled, it works. But this person has still got to be available. They can't go and get sit in the back seat. Got to be available in case something goes wrong that the system can't cope with. Peter, thanks so much. According to a recent survey, the rise in home deliveries over lockdown has led to a 30% increase in the amount of plastic that we're throwing away. Of course, some plastic items are absolutely essential for fighting COVID-19. But in general, the more plastic we use, the more that also ends up in the ocean, where it breaks up into tiny particles 
that we call microplastics. These can concentrate toxins from the water and then carry them up the food chain and potentially back into us. And while we knew this was a problem, we thought we understood the scale of it. That is, until now, because a team from the UK's National Oceanographic Centre have discovered plastic levels in the Atlantic Ocean are considerably greater than we previously thought, as Phil Sansom heard from Katia Pabortseva. We find at least 10 times more plastic contaminants in the ocean than we previously thought. 10 times? That, that's, that's quite alarming, isn't it? That's at least 10 times, so it should be more alarming. The fact that there are many of them, and in these sort of quantities, it doesn't sound promising. How big are the microplastics you're looking at, and what plastics exactly? We're looking at the microplastic particles, which are larger than uh, 25 microns. So if uh, human hair is about 70 microns, you can do the math, it's like nearly three times less. And we look at three most common plastic types, polyethylene, polypropylene and polystyrene. So these are also the most littered. Were you expecting there to be such a huge underestimate? Well, um, in the past few years, scientists were trying to uh, solve the mystery of the missing plastic. We know how much we approximately supplied into the ocean in the past 65 years. But what we have been measuring in the surface ocean so far was just about 1% of that. But what we find in just top 300 meters of the Atlantic Ocean and just with three polymers of very limited size range, we find the quantities which are comparable to the amount that we have put in so far. So that is the striking finding of this study. How, how did you go about then getting measurements from under the surface? We've got this wonderful opportunity to join a research ship that sails every year from the UK down to the Falklands across the middle of the Atlantic. Every day we stop and then we lower our instrumentation down into the ocean to collect water samples or particles. What's your instrument? Essentially, it is a pump loaded with a very fine filter. So what you end up having is all sorts of particles, including microplastics. Is this the first time that anyone had done this, gone out right to the middle of the ocean and lowered a filter on a line to get these measurements? For microplastic measurements specifically, yes, we were the first who has done it. The previous studies were measuring uh, plastic only in the very top layer of the ocean. And those studies were looking at larger plastic bits. And we have all these qualifications, like, you know, you only measured above a certain size, you only looked at a few different kinds, you only looked at this area of the ocean. But given that you found this underestimate of, of 10 times... Is that something that, in theory, might exist for other sizes, all sizes, all kinds of plastic? We just don't know it yet. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yes. Previously, we looked at fairly big plastic particles, and we found them in those concentrations. And then we also saw that those type of plastics are eaten by seabirds or whales or other organisms. Now we're talking very, very small plastic particles, and they can be eaten by uh, much smaller organisms, and which then eaten up by bigger organisms. So if they contain some sort of toxic or dangerous compounds in them, 
that would propagate up the food chain. And ultimately, if fish eats a lot of those particles, then we eat fish, the effects might be even reaching us. And that's why it is very, very important to tackle the question of exposure for all plastics everywhere in the ocean. Because what our research looked at is just uh, three polymers. It's a limited size range and it's a small part of the ocean. (laughs) And we already find so much. Katia Pabortseva. You can read her study in Nature Communications. If you'd like to find out more about any of the stories we've covered so far on the programme, the transcripts and the papers that support the research we're covering are on our website. That's thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. This week we're going to be getting our hands a bit dirty talking gardening, plant science and climate change. Now, the artist Claude Monet of Water Lily fame once said, my garden is my most beautiful masterpiece and gardening and horticulture are certainly popular. Just in the UK alone, nearly 30 million people, which is about half the population, regularly get their gardening gloves on to some extent or another. But with changing temperature and rainfall patterns that are predicted by climate change, how might our gardens and vegetable patches have to adapt in the future. Ross Cameron is a landscape horticulturalist at Sheffield University and he works on climate change mitigation. He's co-authored a report for the Royal Horticultural Society on this very topic. Ross, welcome to the programme. What changes are we expecting or anticipating climate change will bring? It's about extremes. It's about, generally speaking, drier summers and wetter winters in a, in a nutshell. There's some variation. It's northwest Scotland, for example, might also have slightly wetter summers. Um, but it's, it's about pulling apart those weather conditions. So we're going to see drier spells for longer, but also wetter spells for longer. Um, I guess one of the worrying aspects of it is it's not going to be a smooth ride. We're going to see a little bit more turbulence in the system. So we're going to see more oscillations, um, more extremes coming, sometimes quite quickly after each other. So a very dry period followed by possibly a very wet period. Of course, the plants that we are very fond of growing and those plants that feed us very well are not necessarily as fond of those sorts of changeable conditions as a weather person is. So what might be the implications for the plant's we can grow? Do we expect that some things are just not going to be viable anymore? Is this the end of the English country garden? We can deal with the weather by putting on the coat, taking the coat off sort of thing, but plants can't. Plants are very much in tune to their environment and the seasons. So they, they go through periods of acclimation, so they can they can adapt to drought if they're given a bit of a chance to, to run up to that drought beforehand. So these conditions are quite challenging. Um, we're going to see plants that are traditionally maybe been grown in warmer climates they may adapt they may be useful in the garden we may see more of those types of plants but at the same time I think we're also going to see plants who are just kind of generally speaking more resilient more tolerant to stresses in general and trying to bring in that sort of resilience unfortunately that often means the plants are quite competitive quite successful already so things we might just sometimes define as slightly weedy they'll be the ones that are the survivors in some ways. So in my case, lots of stinging nettles. When you were talking there, I was thinking about the fact that uh, if we do see a lot of rain all at once, we get these big deluges. Is there a risk that you could end up with leaching? So the rain comes down on the soil, it washes out nutrients, they go into the river, 
not good news for silting up rivers, but also not good news for the soil. So gardeners are then tempted to put more fertiliser on and that gets leached as well. There could be a vicious cycle there. Yeah, so we've got to be careful about how we manage our gardens, not to putting too many um, chemicals onto the system. We have some, some allies in that. We have things like organic matter. So the more we can kind of recycle compost, recycle horse manure, all those sort of things that gardeners have been traditionally useful for improving the soil, they're actually quite beneficial here because that soil organic matter helps act as a sponge and hold water when there's too much, but also it helps keep that water when it gets dry and provide it to the plants. So old gardeners always say feed the soil to to feed the plants, and that adage is still quite true, I think. And you mentioned water and, you know, keeping water in the soil, but what about keeping water not in the soil but in things like water butts? Is this all going to be about better water stewardship? If we anticipate we're going to have a long run of dry days and we want to grow the same plants, we just need to make sure we store up water for the bad times when we've got the good times, as it were. That's right. If our rain comes in bigger dollops, then we want to capture that and, and reuse it really for, for garden use. Um, rain butts are a, a great idea, but we're also seeing interventions in places like Australia and North America particularly and things like rain gardens. So you actually sculpt out some of the landscape where water can be held. That water runs off very quickly. It, you avoid it going into the houses and the roads and you collect it in certain places and then that can then be used to pump out to, to actually irrigate farms and gardens later or itself becomes a feature in the landscape. So it can be quite small-scale things or it can actually be almost at a community level that you're trying to capture and hold water. Well, more on that sort of thing in just a second because I'd just like to play you, Ross, a little clip we recorded at a special dry garden that's being developed at the Cambridge University Botanic Garden. It's called the dry garden because there's a host pipe ban, a permanent host pipe ban in here. There is no water in this garden? No irrigation, no watering. That's really the idea. It's surrounded on all sides with these quite tall hedges. Those can provide shade as well. Enclosed reduces uh, impacts of wind. So if you can reduce that wind and you can provide the shade, then you are providing some sort of microclimate that allows some of the plants that may be less drought adapted to survive. But then you need to think about the plantings. Uh, And this comes back to selection of those kind of plants that have the adaptations to the dry environment. Um, But the practical um, activities to ensure that water doesn't get lost in this garden are things like mulching. So mulching often, um, having this surface layer of organic material, bark cuttings, or minerals like gravel, all of that will reduce moisture loss from the soil surface. Uh, No lawn. Permeable paving that allows the water to move through the uh, landscape and doesn't result in if there is a heavy rainfall. Now, we're predicting more rainfall in winter, on the other hand, to drought in the summer. So you want to make sure these surfaces are permeable and you're not going to increase your flooding. So basically, it's, it's more sympathetic planting and a bit of forward thought. Yes, indeed. Yeah, it's, it's the right plant for the right sort of situation. And I think that will vary slightly in the different areas of the country. So the areas that are wet at the minute and get wetter, you might be thinking of certain types of um, intervention and in planting. Somewhere like East Anglia, or the east side of the country, then you're, you're thinking about things like scree gardens, using dry adapted species more effectively. Um, and you can get the balance right. You can get keep these guys going quite happily in the summer, but keep the roots above any water table that might appear in the winter through slight changes of level in the garden and using things like was mentioned there, shale and, and other sort of mulch systems. Is it all bad news? Are there any silver linings to this longer growing season, etc., because the temperature's a bit different? Are there any things we can look forward to? 
from the personal point of view, us, we, we will enjoy the garden more. We'll be outdoors more often, I think. We will be using the garden as that outdoor room. Um, and we will always obviously still grow plants in containers where you can, to some extent, mollycoddle them and, and look after them. So we, we'll still have our, our special plants, our pets. But um, it may well be that we're actually having more time and, and using the garden more effectively just because we are having those longer summer dry periods. Ross, thank you. That's Ross Cameron. He'll be back later on in the programme. Now back to the Cambridge University Botanic Garden, where they're exploring the collision between gardens, plants and climate change. Now, Katie Haler went on a walk with Chantelle Helm. We're having summer high temperatures, I suppose, as part of climate change predictions that are being coming a reality. Um, and here in Cambridge, being probably the driest part of UK and probably the driest area in Western Europe, we deal with high temperatures and low rainfall quite often. I think with these increased temperatures, the moisture deficit within the soils is becoming more and more of a problem to deal with. You've got a new trail in the garden. All about plants and climate change, yes. comes out of hope to try and encourage our visitors to appreciate plants for their diversity in terms of their adaptations to climate change. Also to, I suppose, encourage our visitors to understand why we are going certain ways with certain plantings. And also to really talk about how plants can help in mitigating climate change. There is a lot of climate modelling that is trying to uh, group plants into the winners and the losers. And uh, plants that are already adapted to drier, hotter conditions are potentially going to be the winners. And then those plants with much more specialist requirements are probably going to be the losers. So we're talking about plants that probably adapted to very high altitudes. But we're here in the Mediterranean garden. These plants are designed to be in hot, dry conditions, right? Yep, so the Mediterranean, hot, dry uh, summers is the key thing, and I suppose more rainy, wet winters is what they're able to survive. Very sandy soils, it's the other sort of thing, so that there's uh, sort of drainage in the, the summertime. So reduction in leaf surface area is a big key one for many plants. Lavender and rosemary, we're familiar with, they will have very small leaves. So what's going on there? Is that because you've then got less area for the water to evaporate? Exactly. Some plants gone to the extreme where they've lost their leaves entirely. A lot of succulent plants, for example, even maybe cactuses and stuff like that, you'll have no leaves. And the only thing you're seeing there, the leaves are actually the thorns. And that is an adaptation for a very dry environment. So those can do quite well if they're able to deal with the winter temperatures that we have in the UK. So with a Mediterranean planting in a garden, you've got to think about the whole year, the whole season. Even though it may have some good adaptations to summer drought, as it able to survive frost. Many of the plants have got hairs and maybe are grey, so that's all about reflecting light, making sure that the heat doesn't impact on the photosynthetic capability of the plant. But also the hairs will trap moisture close to the leaf surface. So what about the losers? If we come back to the uh, issue with high-altitude plants, especially alpine plants, for example, many of them have adapted to an extreme environment in growing, which is rapidly disappearing so obviously as temperatures rise we're going to have increasing temperature that's going to move up a mountain environment there's they're going to lose space depending on where they are in the mountain and the sort of microclimate the topography of that mountain there may be opportunities for them to hide out but there's also this competition with other species that are also moving up the mountain they may be faster better competitors may grow faster alpine plants tend to grow very slowly because of the extreme environment and extreme conditions they're having to survive in. So there is sort of those losers. It depends on their, the physiology, depends on the mountain itself and whether they're going to be able to survive or not.
So we've got a giant redwood. They've been here for 150 years, some of the largest plants in the world. They don't obviously grow to their natural size here in the garden, even though they are 150 years old because of various constraints. But this plant is useful in the climate change trail because it can show how much carbon a large tree like this can lock away. I think it came up to 50 tonnes of carbon dioxide, the same as eight return flights from London to Sydney. On the one hand, that sounds pretty impressive, but on the other hand, that's a lot of trees. Yes, and if you think how many flights there are, obviously every day, all the time, to different locations, the idea of planting trees to offset all of our carbon emissions is probably not going to be a very sustainable thing, it's just not enough land. And I think that's what we're trying to sort of bring home with this point in the trail. But it's not just individual plants that can mitigate against some of the impacts of climate change, is it? I'm pretty sure you've got a landscape or a type of environment on this trail somewhere as well. Yes, so the other point in the trail is the fen display being a carbon sink. Very fitting for Cambridgeshire. Can we go and have a look? Yes, definitely. Just to describe where we are, we've come into an area, it's waterlogged. What classic plants would you find in this kind of fen environment? Well, you've got a lot of sedges, um, a lot of reeds. If you have the water logging taking place over a extended period of time, you will then have the buildup of the peat, which then provides that substrate in which all the plants are then growing. And what exactly is peat? So peat is an organic material that is formed over time through very slow to no decomposition of organic material, dead plants pretty much. In terms of a very low oxygen environment, the decomposition is very much slowed. So the organic matter is built up maintained within that environment so it becomes the substrate it has got a very wonderful structure in that it, uh, in terms of water holding capacity and other features that make it very good for composting and providing structure to your soils and gardens and hence become very popular in horticulture for many many years though in recent decades we realize that the peat is actually locking away carbon the extraction of peat the whole industry is is releasing huge amounts of co2 in the atmosphere which would have been locked away not only that it's also this this rare habitat, rare habitat that's sort of been destroyed for that peat to be extracted for our gardens most of our fen natural fen habitat has actually been lost in the uk uh, it would have been extensive in this East Anglian region because of waterlogged conditions, very low-lying land areas. That was all drained a while back for agriculture. Agriculture was working very well for a long time in the environment because the, the soils, once you've drained them, they're of very high nutrients. But the loss of this habitat has resulted in the loss and extinction of a large number of different species. So the whole fen land area... Um, in terms of agriculture, is sinking, for one, in that as the peat degrades, it's it's no longer waterlogged, the carbon is being um, broken down, it's released as carbon dioxide, and that is then increasing the amount of carbon dioxide that's coming up, so now the whole area is actually a carbon source, where it used to be a carbon sink. So it's a very rare and protected habitat, and we're trying to recreate it here. Sounds like a remarkable walk. Chantelle Helm there from Cambridge University Botanic Garden. Now, we can't, of course, just talk about plant life without also referring to the animals that live in and on and around them. And pollinators are very often in the news, and we're very worried about their declining numbers in some cases and the onward effect on their biodiversity and also crop productivity. So to think about this, Andrew Bladen is with us. He works at Cambridge University and he's done fieldwork, quite literally looking at butterflies and how they respond to climate change. What were you trying to find out then, Andrew? 
So like many species, uh, butterflies are showing effects of climate change at the population level. So we've seen that species are moving north in Europe and North America. And similarly to the plants that Chantal was talking about, species that are adapted to mountains tend to be declining and they're becoming more and more restricted. And there are also changes in behaviour. So species start to emerge earlier in warmer years. But all of these sort of population level changes that we can detect are likely to be caused by individual butterflies' responses to temperature. But we know, actually know very little about how butterflies respond on an individual level. So what we were trying to find out was exactly that. What do butterflies do to respond to temperature at a fine scale? And can we link that to what's happening at a large scale? And of course, the butterflies that do inhabit different environments that have different ranges of temperatures are going to be affected differently in the way that you've just been identifying. So are there therefore some winners and some losers here? Yeah, so the interesting thing is that at the population level, research by butterfly conservation and long-term monitoring over the last 40 years has shown that despite the fact that our climate is probably improving for the majority of species, about two-thirds to three-quarters of our species are still declining. The suspicion is that that's because there's still a big effect of habitat fragmentation and habitat loss on species. But within that, there are a a small number of species that are doing quite well and species that are expanding their ranges northwards quite rapidly. And those generally tend to be the species that are more ubiquitous. They're the ones that can do well in lots of different environments and they can survive in lots of different environments. So the winners just win more and the ones that are already a bit vulnerable they're finding it even harder to cope. Do you actually know, when you look at those those winners and losers, do you know what it is that sets them apart, why some are just a bit more resilient and some are more vulnerable? That's something that we've been looking at specifically in terms of how they um, adapt their, their behaviour to different temperatures. But I'm going to hold off a little bit on telling you the results of that because we've got a paper coming out in a couple of weeks. So if you watch this space, there should be more answers coming very, very soon. In general, as you'd expect, really, species that are more able to cope with a broad range of temperatures, those that are able to to adapt generally to a wider range of temperatures tend to be doing better. And those which are very specialist uh, and have very specific temperature requirements tend to be doing worse. What about the services they provide to the plants? I started this by referring to the fact they are pollinators. People often overlook the role of, of the lepidoptera butterflies, moths, etc., in terms of their their contribution to the pollination effort. What has been the impact of these changes and what will be the impact of these changes on our plants and flowers and crops getting pollinated? Yeah, so you're exactly right. So about 85% of crops within the EU are insect pollinated. And most people assume that that's all done by bees. But in fact, honeybees, which people think of as the most common pollinators, only actually pollinate about 5 to 15% of crops, which leaves the other 85 to 95% to be pollinated by bumblebees, solitary bees, moths and butterflies, hoverflies, beetles and all sorts of other insects. And so actually the diversity of the insect community is really, really important for crop pollination and is estimated to be worth hundreds of billions of pounds annually. And so if we take your findings and we extrapolate them to what the impact might be on pollination of crops, does that mean it's automatically a worrying picture or is it just that because we don't think the overall numbers of pollinators are going to go down just the diversity is going to drop actually we probably will get away with it the loss of of numbers is is worrying because some are going up there's potentially some some buffering there but the, the thing is that because insect numbers fluctuate quite wildly from year to year and so 
some species will do well in one year and then badly another year. And at the same time, a different species will do badly in the first year and well in another year. And by having that diversity of insect pollinators in the landscape, it means that actually we can be more resilient. So in, a, in, in any given year, we've got more options for the species that can pollinate our crops. The worrying thing is that if we lose some of that diversity, we become less resilient. And so there are fewer options for species to pollinate. And therefore, the chances of us having a really bad year where pollination fails becomes more and more likely. And actually, the the reliance that we currently have and, and is developing worldwide on the honeybee for pollination is particularly worrying. Because essentially, if something bad happens to honeybees, we've lost the, the diversity of, of wild insect pollinators that could be able to pick up the pieces. What can gardeners do to help? One thing is plant a wide range of wildflowers to help give insects a helping hand, things that flower throughout the season. Another thing is to try and reduce the use of pesticides and herbicides because they are directly killing our insects. And the final thing is to try and actually be messier in the garden. Mow less and leave some more taller vegetation, which helps insects to survive through the winter. Andrew, thank you. That's Andrew Bladen. Uh, He's at the University of Cambridge. So, Ross, um, basically, mow less, chuck fewer chemicals on, have a messier garden. Would you go along with that? Yeah, I think in in principle I would. I mean, I think we we can go back to nature a little bit in the design of our gardens and that the, the slightly rougher approach provides a lot of benefits, provides a lot of benefits for wildlife, but even for what I mentioned earlier about capturing rain, um, holding water, um, the ability to, to provide a, a better microclimate for wildlife but also for our, ourselves goes along with a slightly more relaxed attitude to gardens. And then the day gardens are places we want to enjoy and quite a lot of the enjoyment comes from seeing nature. So gardens without butterflies and without birds are... Pretty poor soul, really. Lawn, a well-manicured lawn, is often seen as as the thing we all aspire to. But actually, one person described these things as a sort of biodiversity desert, a horrible monoculture that's very, very demanding on our time of our input and returns very little value. Um, A, is that true? And B, therefore, should I get rid of my lawn? And if if so, what should I replace it with? Yeah, the, the the green desert. Look, manicured lawns have their place. If you've got happened to be luxury of a, a croquet lawn or a grass tennis court, it has to be close mown and and you know functional. The reality is, most of us do a lot of management or lawns which are not necessarily to our benefit. You can let the lawn grow a bit longer. You can get the wildflowers coming in. You can have the pollinators and insects, and you can also retain that degree of respectability is that we're using what we call cues to care so if you cut pathways through it if you um, keep certain parts of it tidy you can actually still have the best of both worlds nice legible walkable paths through the through the 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 garden at the same time allowing some rough and ready spots within the lawn that actually attracts the the wildlife and provides that resilience don't forget your antihistamines though ross thanks very much indeed that's ross cameron from the university of sheffield it makes me feel quite a lot better about my own garden, actually. Now, from creatures that live in harmony with plants to plant pests. And as 2020 is actually the International Year of Plant Health, there is no better time to be talking about them. Now, climate change is going to affect these pests too, potentially impacting our ability to grow enough food even. This is what Sebastian Eves van den Acker studies, and he's particularly interested in nematodes. So, Sebastian, what actually is a nematode? So nematodes are, for the most part, these microscopic worms. And although most people haven't probably have never heard of a nematode, they are incredibly numerous, right? So if you were just to count all of the animals on the planet one by one, then nematodes would account for more than half. 
So, you know, on average, most animals are nematodes. There's this great quote by a, a famous Nathan A. Cobb, and to kind of paraphrase, he says that if you were to remove magically all of the matter on the planet, but you left the nematodes in place, you would still be able to see faintly the, the hills and the valleys and, and, and the fields and the, and, and the rivers uh, simply by the nematodes that used to live there. Sounds like an incredibly well-kept secret. So if they're everywhere, where do you actually study them? Most nematodes are, you know, kind of good guys, right? So they're, you know, important parts of many different ecosystems. Uh, and they carry out many important ecosystems and services. So, for example, they can eat detritus and, and, and things like that. But a few of them have evolved to be parasites. As you say, this year being International Year of Plant Health, uh, what we work on is global food security. And some of these parasites uh, parasitize plants and are, and are major threats to global food security. I see. And so how do they actually cause disease? What makes them parasitic? The kind of nematodes that I work with are soil-borne. They live in the soil uh, and they parasitize the roots of plants. Uh, and what they do is they move inside the root of the plant and they make the plant uh, make a tumor. Now, this tumor is, is really the wrong word, but it's got the right kind of connotations. Uh, this tumor is this new tissue that forms inside the plant that, that drains the plant resources uh, and the, the nematode eats. And so you can imagine if you've got lots of nematodes making the plant make this structure that it doesn't want, and that's draining the resources, then ultimately that can damage the plant. What kind of crops do they affect or, or do they affect plants other than crops as well? Basically every plant in the world. So there's at least one species of nematode for every um, major food crop of the world and indeed most plants of the world. So if, if you've got a plant, there will be a nematode that can parasitize it, uh, whether it's on your plants or not. And what might climate change do to them? Are they looking to have a good time or a bad time with what we're expecting to change in the climate, particularly maybe in the UK over the next few years? It's really hard to predict. I mean, we can definitely say that it will have an impact, so climate change will have an impact, but saying what that impact is going to be is what's is going to be a challenge. So for the particular kind of nematode that we work on, uh, which are called the potato cyst nematodes, unsurprisingly they parasite potatoes, and in the UK there are actually two species, um, and, and one of which likes it hot, uh, and the other one which likes it cold. And so in this case, we actually know quite clearly that if, for example, the average temperature, and in particular, if the minimum temperature in the UK increases, then this one is going to do better. But in most cases, actually predicting the dynamics of how that's going to change is actually quite quite challenging. I guess it's something of a complicated relationship between the nematode and the and the plant in those cases, because they are they are parasites. Is there anything we can do to stop them? Yeah, there's a number of different ways you can control nematodes or indeed any plant disease. I mean, you know, we're all thinking about immunity at the moment, you know, with what's going on, the health crisis. And, and so we're familiar with this idea of hosts being immune to, to parasites and diseases. And of course, plants have immune systems as well, but their immune systems are quite different um, from animals. And so on the most part, plants don't have an adaptive immune system. They have an uh, innate immune system. And I find it quite remarkable that, you know, most plants are immune to most diseases, even though they haven't seen them. Whereas, for example, with for an animal to become immune to, to, to some diseases, they would have to have, you know, uh, some experience of that. And so immune plants is one of the best ways that we can we can combat these. But there are other ways, you know, that involve inputs, for example, pesticides or by, you know, managing your crop in rotations and things like that. I see. So the sort of ideal scenario is just have a plant that isn't vulnerable to these nematodes. I mean, that's the golden bullet, if you like, but, you know, you never count against evolution. And so if you have plants that are immune, ultimately you will get nematodes or other pathogens that can find a way around that. So really a diversity of approaches is the best way. So nematodes are everywhere, but what about other diseases that can affect plants? Are they likely to be a problem too? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are loads of different diseases of plants. They can be restricted to different parts of the world geographically. And you can imagine that some of those, either those diseases themselves or their vectors, will like at different temperatures. So again, if, if the climate um, changes in the UK, um, then it's likely that this will make the UK more suitable to some of those other pathogens or, or less suitable. So different viruses, different kinds of bacterial infections that could affect plants, you mean there? Exactly, yeah. So one that people have heard of a lot in the news recently is Xylella. This is a bacteria that infects plants. Um, and, and this is sort of, you know, on the borders of the UK, if you like, um, but can't quite make it. And that might change with, with climate change. That's exactly right, yeah. It's restricted by temperature. Thank you so much, Sebastian. That was Sebastian Eves van den Acker. It really brings the possible effects of climate change home, doesn't it, to think about what might be going to happen in just our own back garden or, or local park even. Thanks also to our other guests this week, Ross Cameron, Chantel Helm and Andrew Bladen. And to wrap up this week, Phil Sansom has an answer to this wonderful question from our young listener, Jonathan. And hopefully it'll make a splash for you. I am six years old and I have a question. When you stir a bucket of water, I know the water is pushed to the outside. However, why do any particles end up in the centre after the water has finished spinning? I have asked my dad, but he doesn't know. Jonathan, I don't blame your dad for not knowing. The thing that you're describing is actually a thing that confused physicists for ages. They called it the tea leaf paradox because they saw it happening when they stirred their tea. About 150 years ago, they managed to solve it. And now Dan Nickstrom from Maynooth University is here to solve it again for us. It's all got to do with how the water moves after you stop spinning and the fact that it's dragging the particles along with it. If you look at a clear bowl full of water from the side, you will notice that when you spin it, the sides go up really high and the centre goes down low. Now this is because the centrifugal force from you stirring pushes the water out towards the edge, and it's pushed upwards when it hits the side of the container. Centrifugal force is a force that pushes a spinning thing outwards, and it's often called a fake force, because what's really going on is the water just wants to move in a straight line, and it hits the edge of the bucket, and that just makes it look like it's being forced outwards. The result is this whirlpool with high edges. When you stop stirring, the interesting part happens. So the water at the edge and the particles that it's dragging along with it get pushed downwards by gravity. The water in the centre in turn goes back upwards. So this means the water at the edge flows down to the bottom, inwards to the centre and back up to the top again. And this loop is repeated over and over and over as it's all slowing down. The particles are dragged along like this too. It's all very complicated, but um, as it gets slower and slower, the force pulling the particles gets weaker and weaker until it's not able to fight against gravity and can't pull them up at the centre anymore. So this means they'll get dropped right there at the centre, one after the other. I just did this myself in my kitchen to test it out, and Jonathan... You're 100% right. The little bits of schmutz do all end up in the centre, all thanks to this pattern that the water is flowing in. Thanks, Dan Nickstrom. Next time, we're leaving water behind and talking about an entirely different liquid, thanks to this question from Charlie. Maybe this is just me, but it dawned on me that whenever I have to hold in a pee, the need to go increases exponentially when I know that relief is close. Why is this? Do you know the answer? 
Don't hold it in. Do tell us. You can join in the debate on our forum, nakedscientist.com slash forum, or send in your answer via social media. And if you have a question of your own, you can ask via our website by going to nakedscientist.com slash question or emailing chris at thenakedscientist.com. And that's where we must leave it for this week, with thanks, of course, to Katie Haler, who put the programme together. And to tell you, please be sure to tune in at the same time next week because we're going to be doing an in-depth analysis to try to find out where did the new coronavirus come from. What I can tell you is The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University's Institute of Continuing Education and it's supported by Rolls-Royce. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.